You're going to see your current recommendations, and I just want to verify your name and mailing address. What kind of package? About commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. Well, what's the package for? About commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. Well, you send it a package? Yes. Uh, what's the package for? It's uh, commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. That's supposed to be sent to me? Yes. <laughs> oh, wait, what's the package for? It's uh, commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. Right, and it's supposed to be sent to me? Yes. Uh, if you're interested, that is. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's your uh, current address? A package of, uh, of what? Of uh, commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. It's so irritating. And it's, and it's going to be sent to, to me personally or to, just to anybody in general? No, to you personally. <laughs> and what's the package for? It's uh, <laughs> commodities investing, particularly on the gasoline market. I'm going to send it to you. To me? Yes, I just want to get your uh, correct address. So the whole package is going to be sent to me? Yes. <laughs> and what's the package for? It's uh, commodities investing, particularly the unleaded gasoline market. And when are you going you to send a package out? Yeah, so, so do you just have time just to mess around with people? I mean, uh, do you have a job? Why are you asking if I have a job or no, not? Because uh, either you're retired and you're senile or you're fucking with me right now. <laughs> Why would I be fucking with you? You're having me repeat myself over and over again. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> Terrorizing telemarketers. That, uh, that's called senile right there. Jim Florentine, my guest on today's podcast. And... Um, if you're a fan of, like, especially the East Coast comedy, where a lot of that is of the Howard Stern camp and Opie and Anthony as well, but the, uh, the, some of the East Coast uh, comedians, the Louis C.K.'s of the world, the Dave Attells, um, Jim Florentine's been around there. He's been around there for about 30 years. He's been doing comedy, and he's, uh, he's a really good guy, and it was a really interesting interview because it wasn't just setting him up to say silly, goofy things or being angry about something. It was, it was an interview that I had a chance here on this uh, Check My Brain podcast where I got, uh, I, I got to get to know him a little bit more, a little bit more than what you're used to if you're a fan of his on, a, uh, on podcasts and different radio shows or you've seen him on uh, different stand-up specials or doing crank yankers and everything. It was like kind of a different, I don't want to say a different side because it's definitely him, but I think people get the misconception with somebody like Florentine and some of these like kind of Jersey comedians that they're just angry about everything, and they're not. And it kind of tells a little, a little bit of the story. So I'd like to uh, play that for you here in just a second here. But uh, yes, it's the Check My Brain podcast, Tony Mazur. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for being a part of this, listening, and uh, I welcome your comments and your five-star reviews. No more than that, of course. Uh, I need five stars. I need this to actually look pretty decent. So, so, uh, but yeah, thanks for checking that out and check out all of uh, Jim's work. Jim is a uh, he does his own podcast on Barstool Sports. It's called uh, Everybody Is Awful But You. He's got a book out, Crank Yankers, all that stuff. So just check him out. He's basically done it all. So uh, he he's a true. It's weird to say this, but he's a true renaissance man nowadays where he basically beat comedy. He can do stand-up, but he's got so many things else going on that he can really do. And I, I, I just he's a, he's a friend of mine, and it was a really cool opportunity to get to know him a little more. So here is my conversation with Jim Florence. Hello? Yes, this is just calling to verify you're receiving your newspaper. Pardon me? What? Are you receiving the New York Times? 
Which means what? Okay, I'll just cancel it, whatever it is. What's the problem? I want to know, is the newspaper coming? Either yes or no. I don't understand what is. What do you mean? Is the newspaper coming, sir? Okay, I will classify this as refusing to speak English. Thank you. What's the problem? I want to know, is the newspaper coming? Yes or no? Okay, thank you for sharing. Goodbye. All right, folks, it's uh, Tony Mazur here, the Check My Brain podcast, and uh, I'm with somebody that kind of changed my life. And I say that not necessarily hyperbolic here, and that's Jim Florentine. And uh, the reason I say that is it was interesting because uh, two years ago, right around this time, uh, I ended up proposing to my girlfriend, who is now my wife. And the first thing, it was that night, she's like, well, what should we do? And I'm like, oh, I want to take you out to dinner. And then uh, Jim Florentine's over at the Funny Stop, and uh, you want to go see him, because I'm thinking, like, you know, I, he's been married before. He's, he's talked about relationships and dating and dating apps and everything on his podcast, uh, which is called Everybody's Awful. It's on Barstool Sports. It's a great podcast. I listen to it uh, two, even sometimes three days a week, depending on if there's an emergency podcast. And uh, it was really cool getting a, an opportunity to get to know Jim and uh, his well wishes on the day that uh, I ended up uh, getting engaged. And I always thought to myself about that where uh, when I thought about proposing to my girlfriend, because one of the things about your podcast, you talk about the awful dating sites, and you say, look, if you, if you found somebody and there's problems try to work them out and because especially nowadays i can't even imagine what dating is like so jim i I thank you for being here on the podcast and thank you for more ways than one here well i'm I'm just curious what did i say to you that day when you came down and you were engaged well it was more so just like well wishes and like you were happy that I, i found somebody that i really cared about and that i wanted to be with and she's a really cool chick i say that uh no matter what um but it, it, it wasn't really anything like I, I think about to this day, but it was just really cool that the guy who, because when I was single a, few, a couple of years earlier, I was just hearing you talk about, like, you know what, if there's problems, I think you even made a mention saying that uh, dating is nothing more than trading in used cars. Yeah. It's just one thing after another. All you're doing is trading in one problem for another problem. And I, I thought about that when I was dating. I was going on these dates. I'm like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? What, what am I looking at? What am I doing on this date? And I would hear your podcast and talking about that. And I'm like, I, I really don't want to be – I hate being single, to be honest. And, and maybe that could, could have been a problem early on, but I just said, you know what? I, <clears throat> I, I, need, to fucking, I need to crack down here. No, I, I mean, it, it is weird. Like, with date, you know, you should – have to supply some references when you meet somebody and let them talk to your exes and see what you really like because you don't know. You're just taking on this new person. You don't know what kind of past they have, what kind of other problems they had. And if you talk to their exes, just like a job, a job always goes back and checks some job references, talk to some exes and find out what went wrong and what, you know, and then make your decision. You're just going in this blindly. So I'm just saying, like, especially as you get older, you know, you think it's it's better out there. You just, you know, like I said, you're trading in one shitty used car for another shitty used car. They're going to have different problems, but, you know, it's not going to be the same problem. It's not going to be the transmission and the air conditioner, but it's going to be, you know, the alternator and the battery. 
and the heat it's not going to work and the other one but you know the so transmission you works so then you go out and you find something that is uh, like maybe the seats aren't very comfortable so you find one that has better seats but yes. the problem is the radio sucks yeah the radio sucks it keeps going out and there's a short somewhere and then the trunk doesn't open and you got to go use your key to open it all the time and it doesn't do it from the co- and then your gas cap doesn't friggin you know doesn't open from the inside so you got to unlock it get out of the car all of that shit so um no, I just thought maybe you, when I was on stage, I was I was I was saying stuff to you. But you, pro- was, you probably did, and we probably laughed a lot of okay, about yeah. it. But uh, now it was because I think about with dating during the time of apps, because before it was meeting a girl in a bar. Nowadays, with kids in their twenties, you know, before coronavirus, they were like, "Oh, that's kind of creepy." You met someone in a bar. You yeah. met someone through friends. No, you just go on an app. And so a friend of mine gave, he's like, oh, you got to try this Tinder. So we're going back like six, seven years ago. So I tried it out and it took some trial and error. And then I really found the <laughs> kind of the, the wishing well there. And you're saying like, oh, oh, this girl says she's not all about hookups. And I fucked her on the first date. So you're like, oh, okay. So maybe if I just put this and you start adding to your bio. And then I would do things where I would say, oh, I, I do stand up because the, what's the first thing they're going to say is if you're a comedian, they say, okay, funny man, tell me a joke then. Yeah. And then you have to get a gauge on that. So it, I realize I'm like, this is just a game now. This is just a game with these damaged, deranged women. Yeah. And then, look, the dudes on there are no better either. You know, they got problems too. You, you mean like the fish pictures? Yeah. Or just, yeah, just every guy just, you know, trying to relate to the woman. You know, I, I yeah, I like to be outdoors you know, go go hiking and shit like that. So he's like, okay, a woman's going to like this, you know. Well, uh, you know, it's, I, I think about this with my career and been doing radio for a number of years and doing stand-up for just only a few years. And I, I realized that when you are dating, there is an interesting thing when you are in some kind of entertainment industries because stand-up comedians or anybody who's in entertainment, they have some kind of – there's some kind of gene that's just kind of fucked up in their head. And we don't really know what it is. And you have to, in order to come up with material and like the great comics, there's always something to them, whether it's they're fueled by cocaine or some other drugs, or they're fueled by they were abused as a kid and they had a bad home life and everything. And you take that and you are showing that as an art form on your stage because it almost seems like normal people. I don't really know that many normal people who can go up on stage and tell jokes and they get off and have a normal, happy life. So I thought to myself, I'm like, what do I do? Do I keep going down this road of dating damaged women because it's good for material? <laughs> or do I try to have some normalcy, but it kind of hurts me on stage and I uh, you know, get writer's block? It does. If, 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 if everything's going right in your life and there's nothing really right about you know, people don't want to hear the nice stuff that goes on in a relationship. They want the tension. They don't want to know that you guys had a great day. I don't know. You went to the park and you had a picnic or something. And then, you you know, you went home and then, you know, you went to your, you know, went to see your favorite band or something like that, your local band or whatever, and had a great time with family and friends. There's nothing funny there. 
So when everything's going well, there's really no material. When when something, when tragedy strikes or some, you know, breakup or something or divorce or whatever, some kind of life-altering thing in your life, that's what's great to write about. Yeah, and that gets you, uh, gets a lot of people on stage. Like, I started doing stand-up because I was in a failing relationship and I was trying to do things to impress my girlfriend at the time and say, like, look, no, see, I can do this. I'm talented. You don't think I'm talented. And I can go up on stage and I can make a whole room full of people laugh. And, of course, it didn't happen. But yeah. <laughs> And we had broken up and she had never seen me do stand-up. But there's always ways, like, death in the family, you start doing it or whatever the case now you've been doing this for what about 30 years now yeah, right? doing yeah. stand up what uh what was there a traumatic incident was there anything or is it just you were a funny guy that had all these stories from your your childhood and your early 20s that uh, got you into going on stage yeah i think it was just being you know wise ass my whole life and stuff like that and once i went up there once and felt that you know adrenaline rush from getting a laugh i'm like this is what i want to do and i just really focused on it you know, I, uh, you know, when I was making like $300 a week, I was still living at home. You know, a few years in the a couple of years in the comedy, I was making like 300 I'm like, to me, I made it already. I'm like, I'm making a living barely, but I didn't care. I was in my 20s and I was living at home. I wasn't paying any rent. I go, I made it. I'm making a living at what I love doing. So I, you know, I just, I, so I didn't, I wasn't, I was never cocky about it. I'm like, this is good. I go, and if I get to a next level, next level, next level, you know, but um, I just always enjoyed the ride. And I always enjoyed where I, I didn't really have to work for a boss. And that was my main thing. When I wanted a job where I didn't have a boss. Well, you have the – but then there's also – there's certain bookers and clubs that do kind of critique material. Have you gone through that where it's just like yeah, too many F-bombs, you know, the sex jokes, not so much. You have other others who say you're a little too political. Can you tone that down? Or do you just have a lot of mostly club owners who are just like, no, I trust you. You're going to make people laugh. No, you know, as a coming up, yeah. I mean, I, I remember me and Jim Norton, you know, we started at the – same time and we were featuring and we were a little dirty and raw and then the headliners didn't want us to be too dirty so we'd have to have a separate set we knew that to work and to get our craft you know to work our craft and get it better is to have two different sets so if you're doing a real club and you're opening for a headliner we couldn't be that filthy but if we did like a, a vfw hall or a firehouse yeah. or a sports bar we could do what we wanted to do mm-hmm. so we just knew okay we got to alter this set we got to we got to meet them halfway it's almost like a relationship until you get to be the headliner once you're the headliner you can pretty much do what you want like bob levy yeah, I mean, like, I'd say nine <laughs> out of ten clubs don't, as long as you could put asses in the seats, they don't give a shit what you do on stage. The stories of your early stand up, uh, of at least going on the road and you and Norton, and Norton tells the one story about, I think it was his first gig that I think you were featuring. And or maybe just Jim was just doing a guest set or something. You might have been hosting, and Bob Levy was the guy who was the the comic, and you guys would tour with him. And was this during which which wife was this for Levy? Uh, wife one, that was wife, wife number one. one. Yeah, yeah, and the the blue cheese and all that. That was that, that was wife. That was wife two. The blue the blue <laughs> cheese was between wife two and three. <laughs> wife one is when we first met him. Yeah, that. Uh, Levy, hearing some of those stories, and you got, you got to tell the story of the hotel with the couches. Which well, first of all, you know, it, it was great because, you know, Bob Levy took a liking to me and Jim. Bob was already a headliner when me and Jim Norton started. And Bob had, you know, Bob left to drink. 
He was a rage, you know, he drank a lot. And his first wife was like, I don't want you driving. Bob had, you know, Bob was working like six nights a week. There was one-nighters where you can, you know, there's comedy shows all over the place. He already had those connections. So she, you know, he met us and she goes, hey, listen, if you guys want to drive my husband, pick him up at a at our place, drive him and then drive him home. I'll get you a lot of work. She was like managing Bob and a couple other comedians. So me and Jim were working a lot, like one year in. Because you, you weren't necessarily doing comedy clubs. You were doing a lot of one-nighters. Right? A lot of one-nighters, you know what I mean? Rooms, whatever. But that's how we were cutting our teeth and getting better. And, you know, it was because of Bob's alcohol problem that we got a ton of stage time. And we're like, yeah. And I, I go pick him up. It was like 35 minutes out of the way. Go pick him up, drive him to wherever, drive him back to his place, drive 35 minutes back. But mm. to me and Jim Norton, we're like, holy shit, we're working. And Bob would go, hey, I got these MC guys. I'm bringing with me. Pay them 50 bucks each or whatever. And they'll open the show. And, the, you know, he was in with these places. So it was great for us. To get on the road, and then you know, uh, which is the couch story? I'm not. I'm not that sure. That was the one, one where I, I think you guys were go, like taking girls back to a hotel, and what you would do is you take the couches outside the hotel room. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because you know when you get when you you know when you get a girl back to the hotel, they'd always you know to come in, and they would always sit like on that chair in the corner. You know that goofy chair. So we'd all you know like shit, man. Because they're all, and it was always a weird, awkward. You know, they want to hook up, but we're yeah. both, I'm awkward, she's awkward, so it was a weird stage on how to get her to, God, come on over here in the bed, why don't you sit here, you know, and then you start making out, so we're like, all right, if we eliminate those chairs, they're going to have to sit on the bed, they're going to have no choice, so we, we'd stick them in somebody else's room, like the MC's room or whoever mm. was married, we, you know, as soon as we check in the hotel, we'd take all the furniture out. Yeah. Uh, so it was just a bed. Because Voss tells a story, I think, where he said something where he was getting a blowjob from a girl in a car, and... Uh, they were outside the hotel room in the parking lot. Have <laughs> you heard this story? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one of my he's favorite stories. He's getting blown in the parking lot, and he finishes, and he's like, all right, we should probably get out of here. She's like, well, you don't want to get a room? He's like, oh, I went in there. The, the hotel's booked. Well, there's, like, no one in the parking lot. No, they're parked on the other side of the hotel, so we got to get going. Yeah, no, because she originally said, let's get a hotel room, and boss like, okay, fine, and they got to the parking lot, and it was empty. It was like a Tuesday night, and she wound up, you know, blowing him in the parking lot and then when he came he's like yeah he goes uh and he goes uh all right let me go check and he walked up to the front the front desk goes, shit i don't want what am i gonna do i'm i don't need to get a hotel room now and then he came back goes look they're all booked she's like what are you talking about it's like two cars in the bar he goes no they're around back there's a whole big party this part of there's no rooms <laughs> those road stories they're just fantastic i like what, what's with the comics are not driving so didn't auto didn't drive either i don't yeah auto never had a license you know, Bob drove here and there, but Bob would like to drink a lot. So, you know, he'd always have someone drive him. Did you have any good uh, auto stories? Because I know there was one, like Artie Lang tells a story where he found auto at a crack house in Buffalo or something. And there's another story. I don't know if you were there where uh, Otto's dog was, uh, Otto brought his dog everywhere. And uh, apparently Otto stepped in dog shit and just gotten Norton's new car or you know, used car at the time, but uh, there was a lot of those good stories. Do you have any good auto stories? Yeah, Wado well, Yada used to always bring his dog with him in the hotel, and then, it, you know, it'd be barking, and he wasn't allowed to have the dog in there, you know, but Otto was really close to his dog. One thing about Otto, people don't know, he was a really just nice, sweet guy. Like, I lived, you know, I lived like in the next block over for him for a couple of years, so we got really close, and I'd bring my kid over when he was a little kid, and I don't, you know, it was just, he was a nice dude, but when he was on stage, it was nobody better. I mean, the guy, that he, Otto was a type of act where 
you would go in the room and watch every set, even if you heard the jokes before because they were so good. Every show is exactly the same material, but yeah, but not the show. And he even said, he goes, "Look, I'm more like a classic rock act. That's what people want." People want to hear my, you know, the same, just, you know, my lines, my famous lines over and over again. He would work in some new material here and there, but he's like, this is what people come for. They love it. So, uh, no, man, he was a great guy, man. I miss him, man. He definitely, uh, you know, it just, um, he didn't care. I loved it. He was just like, no, I'm going to do it my way. And, you know, he was a comics comic. And, you know, unfortunately, he passed away before. Who knows? David Copperfield was a big fan, you know, and uh, made up an auto for him. I mean, a George for him. But yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, he was just. I just love wa- working with him and just sitting in the back room and watch him. He didn't give a shit who he walked and who got upset and all that other stuff. It was great. He was one of those comics that, uh, yeah, that no, you could have a possibility of nobody in the crowd laughing except the comics in the back room. Now there are certain times where you play f- where some comics have played for the the other comics but Otto is one of those guys where you had to sit there and watch the you were laughing more at the audience's reaction to what he is saying and through the dummy you know the, the yeah. one time of the, the of George getting stabbed and he said something like this spick stabbed me I just remember the one like because a lot of the crowd didn't even know who they were coming to see like we do these shitty one-nighters so they didn't know Otto they and George they paid for the room and everything or whatever yeah and I remember this one time we're doing this shitty one-nighter and this DJ like the you know was playing music before the show he introduced Otto I think it was just Otto it was nobody else on the show and he was this big fat guy he goes okay you ready for the comedy show give it up for Otto and George like that and he walks off the stage and Otto just gets up there with his puppet he's like ugh he goes look at it. he goes look at that fucking DJ Go do a sit-up, you fat fuck. Like, that's the first line he says. He doesn't even care about, like, winning the audience over. Like, who is this guy? Go do a sit-up, you fat fuck. Oh, God, is he... He told... Uh, he was on the ONA Traveling Virus. I only saw him once, and that was when ONA were doing the, the different shows, and they came to Cleveland with Patrice and uh, Voss, Bob Kelly, Bill Burr. Um, and this was the this was the show, because I had never seen Otto before, and it... I'm on the floor. We're at an amphitheater, and I'm on the concrete laughing at his material, even though I've heard it several times. Yeah. But he did a couple of newer jokes, and one of them was the what's black and sits at the top of a staircase, Christopher Reeve in a house fire. And oh, I, that's right. I forgot I, about I'm like, that, that one. I'm like, that is the fun, that was the most disturbing and funny joke I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Because, like, I had heard all the other stuff, and I wanted to get the reaction of my buddy who I brought with me. And that was also the infamous show that was, like, right after Bill Burr's Philly rant. Right. So then Cleveland fans wanted him to be to, to boo Bill Burr because he wanted to start ripping on the Browns or, yeah. you know, whoever was popular and Bernie Kosar and Jim Brown and everything. And he didn't do it. And he, he actually stormed off stage. He got really pissed off. And uh, O&A had to kind of come out and say, hey, guys, you don't understand how good Bill Burr is that you're doing this. Yeah. And I'm sure he probably went through that realm of, oh, great, am I going to have to be the city guy? So when I'm in Salt Lake City, I got to rip on them. I got to rip on the, you know, the Utah Jazz and I got to do this. I don't want to do this. And credit him. He didn't. And yeah, he's no, he, he made the right decision there. He didn't want to get pigeonholed and be and just go, OK, one's going to heckle him until he trashes the city, which he thought would happen, which probably would have. You saw with Cleveland. Um, but no, man, it was just, you know, just, just working with those guys and all those legends and, you know, doing the road. It was, it was amazing. You know what I mean? And it's, I, I, to this day, it was still great. Just working with friends and having fun on the road and fucking around, you know, doing a day and shit like that. 
Yeah, in those days in the 90s, yeah, you could open up a Tony Roma's and put a brick wall, like give him a microphone, and you were like, hey, we have stand-up tonight. And just all those other places, you probably worked in Long Island and Jersey and, yeah. you know, upstate New York and everything. And it just, it, that, those days, I don't want to say they're done, but they just don't have the cachet that I guess they used to. I used to love doing those shitty gigs. Like, I would go back every once in a while and do a firehouse or a VFW hall. You know, around like Pennsylvania, you could still go to a lot of them. But yeah, it's just, I, I miss those crowds, man. I, I did one probably like three years ago, and then like three years before that, I'm like, I miss these crowds. They, they're star for entertainment. They, they, you know, it's the thing they do. You know, every six months they do a comedy show at this VF where they all hang out. They're all members, and it's it's great. So I love those kind of shows. Yeah, the uh, well, so like I was thinking about it with you going in in the business and everything, and eventually getting cranky anchors, but that took a long time. And the the patience or lack thereof in today's society where we have a lot of comedy clubs are just booking TikTok and Instagram stars, which I'm fine. I always say this. I'm fine if you want to book an Instagram star because you think you can do stand-up because it'll fill a room, but you'll never book them again because you realize that they haven't put the work in. Yeah. They're 17, and just because they did funny lip-syncing videos doesn't mean they can carry material. By the time you were doing Crank Hankers, you had been doing comedy for probably, what, 14 years at that point. Um, Maybe well, yeah, two thousand two. Yeah, about probably ten to twelve, about twelve years. Yeah, I mean, I was ready. I already had a forty-five minutes. I was already headlining a B and C room, so I was ready. You know, when I got that pop from Crank Anchors and Howard Stern and stuff, so I, you know, I was lucky to have that. Look, my old, my old, whole philosophy was always when I got an agent, I go, hey, treat these comedy clubs. You know, treat these guys good, these bookers or the owners and stuff, because I plan on playing here for a long time. If I get to the next level where I'm doing theaters and shit like that, then whatever, I'll deal with it. But don't treat them like shit just because I'm I'm hot at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to be working for these guys, and don't beat them up. Because that was my thing. I'm like, I want to establish a relationship. And they got a, you know, my, my uh, booking agent right now, you know, I've known him for 25 years. I used to work for his dad at a comedy club in Albany and then and you know and then he took it over I've known him for years I've had a relationship with him yeah and that's what you, that's what you got to do and the relationships that you establish so all those and really all those like shitty one-nighter gigs at a pizza place really start to add up because then you get you actually get audiences who may not be there for comedy and actually probably had a good time yeah and you start building that and it really is that scar tissue but was there a time was there any time in the 90s that you got really discouraged because there's a classic story Story that uh, I've heard. I think you've told it. I think Dice has told it, and Norton's told it a few times. Of you guys out in L.A. with Lenny Marcus, which is one of the classics, <laughs> where you and Dice got to go on stage, or, or no, you and Norton got to go on stage to do Dice material from the day the laughter died. Yeah, and just basically recited it word for word, or at least as best you guys could on stage at the comedy store, and. That wasn't the store what it was in the 70s and 80s, and it certainly wasn't the store up until a couple of months ago. That was the Those are the dead years, right? Oh, yeah. It was probably like 15 people in the audience who did, did it in the original room. You know, no, that, that, that really changed our careers, especially Jim, because we met him. It was like 98 we went out to. It was the first day me and Jim Norton were ever in California. They flew us out there to do his Louis Anderson comedy yeah. showcase thing on NBC. And um, we went to the comedy store. We found out a boss told us, he goes, hey, Dice is here. You're idle. And we were somewhere. We're like, holy shit. We ran up to the comedy store and we met him. And we started talking about how we like those data laughter died. And that's all we do is listen to on, on the road. 
and we're reciting the jokes. He goes, I don't even remember them. He goes, what, can you guys go on stage tonight and do those jokes for me and my friends? And the bat would go, yeah. So he told the booker, he goes, hey, put these guys on, announce them as Jim and Jim, give them two microphones. And we went up there and just did these jokes, and the crowd was just staring at us, and Dice and his friends were cracking up in oh, the yeah. back. And then after we, I, I recorded it on my recorder. I had a cassette, I remember. We listened to it in his car in the park a lot. You know, and the next day he goes, hey, man, where are you guys staying? We told him. He goes, oh, you know, maybe I'll take you guys out shopping tomorrow. We go, okay. And then he showed up the next day. He's like, well, I'm here. Come on, let's go shopping. And then, you know, Jim, Dice wound up bringing Jim on Opie and Anthony. That's how Jim got the third mic on Opie and Anthony from – they loved them. They're like, holy shit, this guy's crazy. You and know? Dice's career was extended by that point because, I mean, you're talking mid to late 90s. Dice wasn't Dice wasn't Dice anymore. Right, because Dice wanted to see. He said, look, i got to stay home and take care of my boys, mm-hmm. my kids. That's more important to me. You know what I mean? So he I, took- I actually didn't know that. I thought it was – maybe it's just because I, I don't know Dice and I've only seen him a couple of times, but it, I didn't know that that was what it was, that he wanted to stay home with the kids. I thought it was more so that it just wasn't his day anymore. Well, like, yeah, you know, I mean, like it's possibly not- that. I mean, he was still doing gigs here and there, and he mm-hmm. wasn't drawing as much. But he just said, "I got to focus on raising my kids." He went through a divorce and all that stuff, and he's like, "This is more important to me." Yeah, it's like it's you know like when it- Dane Cook was at the top of his game, and people still know who he is now, and they'll still go see him if he's right. in town. But it's not Dane Cook Day anymore. Right, and, right, right. Dice had Dice was the biggest. I mean, arguably from what eighty eight to ninety two was probably the biggest comic in the country. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yes, but that turned around, that turned Jim's career. Then I wound up opening for Dice. It opened doors for me and all that other stuff. So, you know, and it was all because we went to the comedy store that night and we knew those records. And me and Jim, we did road gigs. That's all we do is listen to old Dice stuff. Yeah. Especially those albums. So we knew all, you know, and then we met him and we became friends with him. What's the, now would you say that is probably your favorite comedy album? that you would listen to like where it, it was okay. Cause early on when you're doing standup and I'm still, I'm almost seven years into doing standup. So I'm still in that. I'm trying to find my voice. I'm still trying to find what it is that I can go on stage. That is really representative of me off stage that I can do on stage. And that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast and everything. And that, Hey, who knows? Podcasting could be the future of standup. We don't know what everything's going to be like, but the, my interests, things that piss me off, things that uh, excite me, everything like that. I try to bring that on stage, and I, I'm still trying to find that voice. And early on when you're doing it, you're like, okay, this person sounds like Bill Hicks. This person sounds like Bill Burr. This person sounds like Carlin. This person sounds like this. How long did it take you after listening to Dice and Kinnison and all those uh, guys you grew up with in the tapes in the 80s that you were starting to find the Jim Florentine voice? Um, probably like seven years, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. I was definitely a dice clone in the beginning. You know, you had the cl- long, you had the long hair that you were jamming Jim at that. time. Yeah. Right? That. And I like Dangerfield too. So it was a lot of quick one liners, you know, when we were playing in shitty bars and, you know, and stuff like that, where they were barely paying attention. I had to get to, I said, I got to get to my punchlines quick cause I'm going to lose them. So I didn't tell long stories. So it was a cross between dice and, and, and Dangerfield, but about seven, eight years, usually like the ninth year they say is when you really start yeah. finding your voice, you start becoming a good comic. And it, it was, it's right. You know, you don't think that in the beginning, you think you're better than you are, but around year nine is when I really started hitting my groove. Cause I really, one of the biggest insults that you can hear as a comic, which is actually Actually, it's supposed to be a compliment, but it's actually an insult, is I did a show, I think I was maybe two and a half years into doing stand-up, and I opened for Sam Tripoli. And you you know Sam. And Sam is just, he can talk about, he could do his material, or he can do two hours on stage about, you know, the Kennedy assassination. 
and somebody comes up to me and it was the hecklers it was it was just a not not a great crowd it was a late late show crowd and came up to me and said you are funnier than everybody on that stage especially that last guy and i'm like you don't understand how funny sam tripley is if you're you're just too fucking drunk because i just went on stage i did 10 minutes or five minutes. I don't even know how much long, how long I did. I said, I've only been doing this two and a half years. The only people who can get to that point in that quick a time is probably Chappelle and at the time, Freddie Prince. Everyone else, it takes them a long There is no overnight successes in this business. And especially in those first few years that it really is, you are influenced. Your, your persona is influenced by who you listen to until you find your voice and that you're able to go on there. And I, it is interesting because you say that because Voss went on stage early in his days and they, they would rip on him on ONA and everything. And his early standup was him trying to do Stephen Wright jokes. It was, all right, here's, you know, oh, it's a funny, quick little non sequitur until you finally found out that it's Rich Voss, that he can go on stage and just assassinate a room, especially a room full of bachelorette parties. So it really is interesting when you hear about that voice. And I think when you're a young comic, you don't get that guidance, or at least you're not seeking out that guidance from older people to say, look, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do this. This isn't like, you're not going to be good in a year. You're not going to be good in five years. It might be 10 years. It might not even be 10. It might be 20 years that you won't be good. And it's going to take you a long time. You want to be a marathon runner? You can't just go out and run 26.2 miles right now. You have to start running a mile and then two miles. You have to build up to that point. And I think a lot of comics don't get that kind of guidance, or at least they're not seeking that when they start. Well, yeah, you got to be patient. And then also getting back to when you know someone in the crowd says you're better, you're funnier than a headliner. People always the audience. People always like to root for the underdog. So when the underdog is the feature act or the MC instead of the headliner, they want to, you know, if they see, oh, you were funnier than them. Meanwhile, they don't realize that the headliner has to do 45 minutes to an hour. The yeah. headline has to deal with the check spot when they drop the check and the 30 minutes into the show and no one's paying attention to the stage and he loses the crowd for five to seven minutes. Ron Bennington said that in the 80s that when he was doing his club down in Florida that he was just doing a bunch of like dick jokes and smoking pot and watching cartoons and they loved him and Bill Hicks was the headliner. And they said, oh, we didn't really like that guy. We liked the guy in the middle. It's like, you don't understand how good and how much work he's put in. Yeah, and I remember opening for Dice one time. I did 20 minutes, and then he had to do an hour. And I was outside, and people came outside, you know, the club, and they go, and Dice is still on stage. I go, you're better than Dice. You were better than Dice tonight. You should be the headline. I go, no, I shouldn't. I'm I'm like, no, no, you are. I go, listen, I did the best 20 minutes that I've ever written in my whole career. I go, and then Dice has to do an hour. I go, if Dice did his best 20 minutes in front of me and I had to do an hour, you'd be saying the same thing. It's, but, you know, people just like to do that. They like to go, you were funnier than this guy, whatever. I hear it all the time. You mm-hmm. know, it's just, that's just, but you can't get, I, I never got a big head. Like my whole theory in comedy and everything is don't get too high and don't get too low over a show. When did you figure that out? Early on. Okay. Early on. I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, just because I did a great show, I think I'm going to be on HBO the next day. Yeah. And, you know, if I too low, I go, there's always another show. I got to redeem myself. Sometimes it's bad to have a bad show. So it really makes you focus and go, fuck, I got to I gotta really amp this up the next show and I got to really focus. Do you, do you have a shit gig that stuck out in your mind that you kind of look to as this was the, this is where I turned the page to a new chapter in my career? Like, was 
was there a gig where you got booked? And because I have a friend of mine who was doing one time, he had to do on top of I think like a hot dog cart was the was the stage, and I you know I, I I've done enough porch shows and I mean uh, besides the Zoom shows and all this other horseshit that's going on right now, but like is there one where it was like because you did well or it was so shitty and you bombed so bad that you're just like is this what I really want to do or this is exactly what I want to do and I need to continue it and make sure that I don't perform these kind of gigs anymore well you know in the in the beginning um, when I first started doing comedy I started going to New York City right away like six months into when I wasn't ready and I thought I was because I was doing shows in front of my friends, local gigs, and they were laughing in these bars. Your family goes out and they laugh. Right, and my friends, and they're all laughing. Then I go in New York, and no one knows me, and I'm bombing. And I realized at that point, I go, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for New York City because once they see you and you don't do well, they don't want to see you for a long time. You got that fucking stink on you. So I just knew. I said, I, I got to wait till I'm ready to come back in. So I, I went about, I was maybe doing it like three, three and a half years, and then I started going back in. When I when it was better, I still wasn't probably ready, but I could fit in. I could still get some sets here and there. But I knew that early on. I go, I'm not ready for this. So I knew just back off, go work, my, hone my stuff on the road, could be a better comic out there, and then I'll come back into New York City. And then you finally got to New York, and you're able to do a lot of because you were kind of ahead of the curve when it came to the, especially the crank anchor stuff and the the prank phone calls and the characters because. I think in those days, you were starting to see that trend of the new generation, and you were part of that new generation, where you can't just be a stand-up. You can't just say, like, you had Jackie the Joke Man would be on Stern, but he would do his nightclub gigs and sell merchandise. So while the other comics are making a couple of bucks and everything, and he's making a fortune based on his, his tapes and his CDs and T-shirts and everything that was happening— and you were kind of, I think, ahead of that curve where you can't just be a stand-up and then you go home and, you know, for the next 22 hours in the day, you just do nothing until your next gig, that you had to do a little bit more, which kind of created the podcast generation. Well, at least in the 90s, you had the uh, uh, public access shows. So somebody like Brody Stevens had his own public access show and a bunch of others, and that turned into something where you say, I can't just be a stand-up. I have to be a stand-up and then do radio. I have to do this. I have to have a TV show. I have to be creative. I am in the uh, whatever realm. And you, you see this where you can't just have one job nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I look, I just fell into the whole crank anchors thing. I was just, um, you know, when I was home during a day, I'd start a recording whenever telemarketers would, would uh call my house. I would mess with them. I try to keep them on the phone as long as possible. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. Mm. I started recording. I put a CD out. I said, maybe I'll sell them after a show. It wasn't even on a record label or anything. I made them up myself. I go, maybe I'll get my name out there, sell a few after a show. And then, you know, next thing I know, Howard Stern starts playing them. He's like, this shit is great. I had no idea what I was on to. I didn't know it was going to go in that direction. Yeah. And then, you know, three months after that, Crank Anchor show comes out. You know, looking for guys to do prank calls, and Kim and Carolla, who's there, that was their crank checker, that was their show, heard my stuff on the Stern show. Jack Cole Productions, right? Yeah, and they go, we want you, we want this guy that does these prank calls on our show. So it just happened like that. I, I didn't think anything was going to come from it. I had no fucking clue. Mm, yeah, because well, in those days that I mean, you think about what Jerky Boys was. Jerky Boys was such a huge influence, and before that, you, you probably know the Tube Bar pranks. Oh yeah, they were great. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you know that place at all? No, like, I know it was in like Bayonne, Jersey yeah. City, or something like that. Or something like, oh yeah, oh, some like yellow, yellow, yellow belly cocksucker. I know, yeah, I'll fucking, fucking cut you. I'll fucking, <laughs> I'll, I'll gut you, you cocksuckers. Because when you think about that, that is like such a huge comedy influence. Because when you think about influences with comedy, and it's a lot of times it's not just stand up that. Growing up, like I, I thought about it, like what influenced me, and it really necessarily wasn't necessarily stand-up because you can't get into a club until you're 18 or 21, and a lot of times it was HBO, and I didn't have HBO growing up, and I wasn't allowed to watch it, and whatever the case was, so I was influenced by Looney Tunes, and I was influenced by, uh, like the Who's Lines Anyway, improv troops and everything, and so it wasn't just stand-up, and then you realize that something like the Jerky Boys, and then eventually Crank Yankers just had such an influence on our culture that I, I think, I don't even think people even realize. that It's just when you hear that, when you hear Frank Rizzo or Saul Rosenberg, and you just hear those, and then Special Ed and, you know, uh, uh, some of the characters that uh, Adam Carolla was doing, it's there's like a kind of a, a fabric in that in comedy, especially nowadays, that when you hear it, you automatically go, oh, yeah, I remember those days when I get the telemarkers, and I'd want to do exactly the same, and I did, that's what I did. You pull up like E-Bombs World, and you put the, uh, uh, the, the sound boards, and you're trying to get everybody with all the telemarketers, and you realize that you guys just – you really capitalized on something that was right there for people. And I, I wasn't even a prank call, call fan growing up. Like, I knew the Red Bar stuff and the Jerky Boys, but I wasn't a huge fan. I just, which I, I did prank calls when I was a kid because that's mm. what you did. You were bored or whatever. But I wasn't like this fucking, you know, prank call call connoisseur and I knew every prank call and that's what I wanted to do I just did it on a way you know I was just I was just messing with them and I, I remember telling my buddy Don Jameson I go yeah I met this telemarketer call man I was fucking around with him he's like he goes dude put me on three-way I want to hear this mm-hmm. and I put him on three he goes dude you're onto something you got to start recording these he goes I'm a Jerky Boys fan and this, this shit is great you're onto something. I'm like, you think? I just thought it'd be funny for my friends. So I just fell into it, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like you said, getting back to it, you don't know where your career, whether, you know, nowadays, whether it's TikTok, a podcast, or some YouTube or whatever like that, where your career, how you're going to get to that next level. And you try everything. I mean, I've been doing my podcast since 2011. I was one of the early ones. I just, you know, I always wanted to just be my own boss. Yeah. Uh, kind of like Twitter. Twitter was one of those in the early days where it, you were tr- kind of trying out material. And Twitter was a, pl- a place where it's just like, okay, if I get a bunch of likes and retweets with this, oh, maybe I can tweak this and put this into my act. And then, of course, nowadays is that they go back in history and say, did you say this? I, like, I always remember you you made a Jerry Sandusky joke. Right. It, it was, I don't even remember it, but it was hilarious. And I would go back to it. And I thought I thought about it the other day. I'm like, if I retweeted this now, nine years after the fact, people are like, that's completely offensive. I can and you don't realize at the time you're trying material out or you think it's a funny concept. And in those days, social media was kind of like the Wild West. Nowadays, it's 2020 and you have Joe Rogan on Spotify and you have all these Spotify employees that want to walk out because he had transphobic, quote unquote, episodes on his podcast. And it's just like the the, the landscape has changed. So you almost have to continue keeping up with that landscape but doing your own thing. I, like, I, I don't know what the answer is because I was just playing an O&A uh, thing the other day for my wife, and it was from 2000. 
stuff you can't even do on a podcast nowadays. On terrestrial radio, FM radio. I remember listening. There was a song called I'm Horny for Little Girls. Right. You can't even put that on a podcast without it being flagged and being thrown off every social media platform. So you just got to keep... But, you know, kudos to, I guess, Dave Portnoy and Barstool. They just let you do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Look, I think that's the way it's going to go. If you're going to be, I, I think, you know, you're going to have your audience. People people still want to hear inappropriate stuff. People want to hear dirty jokes. They're not, you know, the, the media is driving this whole thing where the whole country is PC. and They want to be angry. They're, they're offended by everything, and they're really not. So I think the guys that are outlaws and just don't give a shit about what they say are going to find their own audience and are going to be huge. They're not going to be... They're not going to be household names, but who wants to be a household name when everyone's going to come after you for any little thing you did in the past? So you build your own audience and you play to your own audience and you make you know millions of dollars and and you fly under the radar. That's that's fucking great. Bill Burr always says, "I love just flying under the radar, like I'm not a a, a household name," and I love that. You know what I mean? And it, you know, well, it's ro- refreshing for him because he is now a household name. I think for a lot of people, but it's refreshing because half the audience is going to hate it or half the potential I should say potential audience because his audience loves it the potential audience they're going to say they're going to watch him on SNL and they're going to watch a special and they say god this guy's a sexist this guy's awful while the husband's sitting next to him and just laughing his balls off yeah that's what it is and there's got to be a niche for that and somebody like Louie because when you have something I I always remember Patrice was talking about uh, a story where he said I look up at my ceiling fan every day and I think I'm thankful for it. Is it because somebody, if I got to a level of fame where they can possibly take that ceiling fan from me and it's all gone? He's like, that's why I, that's why people don't want to hire me. They want to hire a Patrice like person, somebody kind of like that, and where you're flying under the radar and doing that. So somebody like Louis C.K. was the biggest comic. Arguably, you could say Louis was the biggest comic of the past 20 years. And hit that level where he's selling out theaters, he's selling out arenas, multiple nights. Then the Me Too stuff happens. Well, why does the Me Too stuff happen? You and I knew those stories. I, I'm, a, I'm a local guy in Northeast Ohio, a comic. I heard those stories about Louis for a long time. Why did it happen? Well, it's because Louis pissed off the wrong people. He started going on with the ticket or uh, the Ticketmaster and saying, you know what, and, and the distribution and HBO and saying, you know what, no, I'm going to film my special. I'm going to fund it myself and put it on my website. And I'm going to put it up there for five bucks. If you want to watch it, go for it. Please don't stream it. Don't put it on any torrent websites. And if Comedy Central and HBO and Showtime want to play it, they can. They just have to buy it from me. Well, he went around the system and he pissed them off. Yeah. So when you but when you fly at that kind of or like above and you're on their radar, you have something to lose. Now you're somebody you've you have so many different things in VH1, a classic with that metal show and crank anchors. You're there, but you're also not, and no disrespect, not the household name like a Kevin Hart, where you can still have that opportunity to, to say and do whatever you want. And there is an audience for it. No matter what they think, oh people people have changed, people have adapted. They don't like that kind of shock jock, dice clay, Howard Stern stuff anymore. And like now they do, and there's pockets of it, and people would like to hear it. It's just they're, the mediums are so spread out where you're not just getting on radio and television anymore. There's so many different mediums to get that kind of entertainment. The people def- There's people out there that definitely want to hear it. I, my, my whole philosophy from day one was 
look, if I ever make it big, what's the difference if I have, you know, 10 bedrooms or four bedrooms in my house? I don't, it doesn't make a difference. So I'm not going to compromise what I'm about just so I can have 10 bedrooms. I can't fill those 10 bedrooms. So what the fuck am I going to do with them? I don't need the, you know, the, the, the new fucking, uh, you know, Range Rover every six months and lease six different cars. I'm, I got a used Honda Accord. I'm good. It has I'm four not trying wheels. To, it gets me from point A to point Exactly. A. I'm not trying to show up. I don't give a shit. So, like, if I don't have the fucking six cars in my driveway, it's not going to make a difference. I'm not going to compromise myself. That What am I going to do with the six cars? I can't drive them all. I can't fill ten bedrooms. You know what I mean? So that was always my philosophy. Who gives a shit what kind of, how big my house is? You know what I mean? I, I got to have I got to do it the way I do it with shit that I think is funny. And if people don't like it, which I know, I always say, look, I, I get it if you don't get it. And I love flying under the radar and just doing what I want. But I don't you've need, kept your integrity. That's, that's right. And I don't is. need to be Hollywood and fucking just change and then all of a sudden be PC and, you know, and do, do all the bullshit that you have to do. I, I'm not, I was never an ass kisser. I just I just don't have it in me. So that's why I never moved to Hollywood. You know, you want to give me little bit rolls? I'm going to do it my way. I love, that's why I love just fucking slinging out in the clubs and nightclubs and telling jokes. I love that shit. That's always been my favorite thing to do. Yeah, and and now you have that audience and you and Don and uh, kind of people of that equivalent because they are that New York style and, uh, you know, to see if it's going to translate in other markets. Like, do you, I, I was hearing an interview with Colin Quinn and Colin was talking about how Working in front of a New York audience is interesting because you have a lot of tourists, and they're from all different parts of the country. So it's you can't just be as brash as a New Yorker can be. You are actually getting an opportunity to see, oh, these people are from Kansas, these people are from Idaho, these people are from Indiana, and you get to try your material out in different ways. And have you ever, have you ever thought that, especially early on in your career when you were a predominantly East Coast comic and you were touring and you were doing some stuff around there, that how is this anger that you have on stage and your persona going to work in middle America? Or did you just say, look, if people like it, they like it, or they don't? Like, did you ever have that thought of needing to tweak the personality? No, I just remember like in like 2003 or something like that, when Crank Angus first hit, I got a big agent and he booked me in in, uh, Overland Park, Kansas. At this club, he goes, yeah, man, listen, you know, you're going to headline it or whatever like that. And I just remember coming from the airport, and I see Welcome to Kansas sign. I'm like, holy shit, they're going to fucking hate me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I remember the first night didn't go well, and I'm like, fuck, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get, I'm gonna get sent home. I know what they're going to tell me. Was this the one where they thought you were a puppet act? No, no, this wasn't that one. But then the next <laughs> night, and, and I remember the next morning, the club owner was driving me like to do morning radio. And I go, oh, man, I go, uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, this will be good. You know, it'll be a good weekend. He used to be a comic, the guy. And I go, man, I go, sorry about last night. He goes, what do you mean? I go, yeah, man, I just, you know, that crowd was a little tight. He goes, ah, he goes, don't worry about it. He goes, it's a fucking rich area. He goes, wait till the weekend. The weekend shows are great. Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday shows are always tight. Yeah, he goes, you actually did great compared to what usually, you know, happened. I was like, oh, thank God. And then the weekend was great, but I was so nervous. Like, I'm going to get sent home. They're not going to get me. And then I realized that, you know, especially with cable TV and the Sopranos and all the shit in Jersey Shore, that everybody kind of knows the accents, the attitudes. So, it, you know, maybe back in the day it was tough to go to Alabama or wherever, you know, Bible Belt or some shit like that. But now it's like any, any city is pretty much, you know, you could do it's whatever you want. It's pretty homogenous now. Yeah, yeah. So it, even Canada, you know what I mean? They get all the references. Well, and, and the, the urge for people in New York and L.A. to actually get out and do road work 
is that okay? You're around the comedy store, you're around the cellar, you're around Caroline or uh, um, uh, the stand, and a couple of those places. That's nice, and you're getting work again before all everything got shut down. But now, especially, this is the time for you to come to a funny stop and a funny bone and you know crackers and all these other different clubs because you, they're the only ones open right now. Can't work in New York. You could probably do. You know, you do a drive-in show, or I, like I saw Bob Levy doing a show on on a, on a like the bed of a pickup truck, and I'm like, oh god, I'm like, this is the Reverend Bob Levy, and he's doing a show with a speaker with the microphone attached to it on a pickup truck. I'm like, oh, this is this is not how stand-up should be. <laughs> I did the same show the week after. Oh, so you did I that know. one. That was the first show, time I was on stage. It was like mid-June since March. You know, it was like a, a drive-in show. I said I got to get up there. I, I missed it. You know, I missed it, you know, working, getting that adrenaline rush. And, the routine, yeah. And the routine. I didn't have it for two straight months. I was living a fucking normal, boring life. I was getting tired at 6 o'clock. I'm like, I go to bed at 9.30. I'm like, what the fuck happened to me? You know, so, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I just always, I like performing in the clubs, you know, nightclubs, telling jokes. That's always been my thing. I can my, my own boss. I can wear what I want. I could say what I want. And as long as I could draw some people, they'll keep having me back. As long as my price, I don't outprice myself. And I'm like, we were talking about the funny stop last night. The owner, Pete, he goes, yeah, you've been coming here for 2012. So I come once a year for the last eight years. I got a great relationship with them. And I get to work out my material. I haven't done like 45 headline sets. I've only done like two headline sets since March. Two or three full sets. So this is a club where I could do a five so- shows over the weekend and work on my material. So it's great. And everyone's expectations have been kind of low anyways. They just want to get out of the house and they want to laugh. Yeah. So it's not they're not necessarily going to be so uptight. The You'll- crowds have actually been better. I mean, because um, the people that are coming really are comedy fans that want to go see comedy and are paying and stuff. So I've noticed that the, since the... You know, anyone that's coming to a comedy show, it's not a free ticket and they're actually a, a great crowd. Well, they're actually comedy fans. So, you know, thinking about the kind of future with comedy, and it's not just the future of comedy, it's the future of entertainment, how things have changed. And when things were locked down and we had no sports for, what, four months, I didn't miss them. I didn't miss them at all. I used to love sports. Every Sunday, I know you have your uh, football parties that you have and uh, Super Bowl and you know, NBA, I was starting to already wane from that anyways. But baseball, I loved baseball. I really didn't watch this year. I didn't. And it kind of, you kind of start looking at the future of entertainment. And it's not just that the politics and the social justice stuff that they were having. It's there are other options. I mean, late the fact that there's still late night TV like talk shows, there's no buzz about them. Joe Rogan, one podcast and just a random guest, one podcast has more listeners than all three of Fallon, Colbert, and uh, uh, forgetting the other guy, Kimmel, uh, Kimmel, and uh, all of them together. And it's it's not not necessarily their fault because the the medium was starting to die anyways. And kind of that future of entertainment, you say. Like, what is the answer? Just to keep putting content out there? No, I. Well, I, the sports is it, it, people didn't miss it because they got into the politics. And as soon as you get into politics and you're bombarded everywhere, you you walk in any 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 you know restaurant and you got CNN on one TV, Fox on another, MSNBC. You're bombarded with this bullshit. Yeah. And then they started putting it in sports. You know what I mean? And people like they were turned off by it. Like enough. I just want this is the two hours where I just want to fucking watch a game. I don't want. I don't need this shit shoved down my throat anymore. And really, the one thing is that sports became political and politics became sports. 
And that's what I hated about it. Yeah. Is that why, why am you're rooting for your team? But it's it, we shouldn't be doing that. That's not what we should be doing. And it's it's pissed a lot of people off and caused a lot of that division. But yeah, again with baseball, they're putting BLM on the pitcher's mound yeah. uh, on the first game and everything. I'm like, look, I get it. And and, the, and obviously the reason is that they had no fans. When the when the Chiefs went out on the field in that first game and they started getting booed, I know, and, and they didn't like, oh, understand. JJ Watts like, why are we getting booed? Yeah, you didn't understand because there's never been fans there. That's why they could pull this shit off. Got to read the room, you know. But uh, no, but I, I getting back to your point, concerts and comedy will definitely come back strong when everything reopens because people still want to see live entertainment as long as we're not doing a fucking you know we're kneeling before the fucking comedy show starts, <laughs> you know, hanging banners and shit like that, and you know. And, and same with the concerts, you know what I mean? People want to go see live events. The sports, yeah, it pisses a lot of people off. I live in the suburbs in Jersey. I talk to the dads and the moms and shit. My kids play sports and stuff. I talk to them, and they're all fucking pissed off. Some guy the other day, my kid's basketball game is wearing a Redskins shirt, Washington Redskins, old school. Mm-hmm. I go, I love that shirt. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I'm not even a fan. I go, you're not? He goes, no, I love the Giants, but I had to get this shirt just to support yeah. that they're changing their name. He's wearing a red. He goes, I fucking hate the Redskins, but I'm I'm wearing this. <laughs> you know, and that's the mindset. They're like, enough. I don't, you know, you, you know, when the NBA's telling everyone to vote and they want fucking voting fucking, uh, you know, things, voting stations at all the arenas or they're not going to play the next game, you know, when they did that little fucking pro. And then you find out only 20% of them vote. Like, get the fuck out of here. Only 20%. And all the people that are probably coming from the suburbs saying like, oh, I can't wait to go vote at the arena. It's like, no, that's not your polling district. Right, exactly. You can't, you know, you have to live around the corner to fucking (laughs) vote there. You know what I mean? So it's so stupid. You know what I mean? You can't just, I can't go to Barclays Center because the Nets play there to go vote. I don't live in that district, so I can't. So when you hear shit like that, the hypocrisy and all that stuff of 20% vote, they don't give a fuck. You got $20 million, you're a 21-year-old kid. You don't give a shit about politics. But they all just jump on the bandwagon, you know. So that pisses people off. So that's why people didn't miss sports. No. I didn't miss it either, you know. I watched old – there, there was uh, – somebody put on YouTube these uh, – it was from MLB Network. It was baseball seasons. So I was watching like – just the other day I was watching the 1981 season. So it was when Fernando Valenzuela was pitching. and Yeah. Uh, the, the, that's when there was a strike, so they split the season in half. So the winner of each half got to play in the playoffs, even though Cincinnati had the best record in the league – but didn't win either half. And it was an interesting thing because I'm like, I'm going back in time and my wife's working from home and I'm just sitting there watching these YouTube videos of, you know, baseball 1992. And she's like, what year is this are you watching? I'm like, oh, I'm watching the 90s season when the Reds went wire to wire and beat the A's and swept them in the World Series. And realize I didn't need I, I I it's like really is that pining for the old days that I kind of liked. And I wonder if that's going to happen with stand up is that because I started seeing it in the last few years that the political comedy was just it, it started going away, and I was happy about it because it. We, look, if you if you want to talk politics, start a podcast, do a political podcast. But when you're on stage, I I heard more dick jokes in the last three four years than I did in the past you know probably twenty before that because everyone wanted to be a political comic, everyone wanted to be Bill Maher, and they wanted to be Carlin on stage, and I started hearing a difference, and it was a change, and it was a refreshing change. And I was I, I did a show with Dave Landau the day that Trump was inaugurated, and I knew that I could say the filthiest, most disgusting, obscene things on stage that would get more laughs than if I said one thing political that could split the room right then. Yeah. Even if it's all Trump people or Biden people or Hillary people or whoever it is in the crowd, it just makes people uncomfortable. 
but then I can do the Gilbert Godfrey aristocrats joke, and it'll bring everyone back. Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, people, what happened was when Trump came around, every comic thought they could do Trump jokes, including all the late night guys. So it was the same joke over and over again. He's orange. And, His hair is Yeah, weird. exactly. It was Nazi. the same joke. Can you believe how crazy he is? You know, it was, it was, I always said it was like a Polish joke. Okay, what's what's the punchline? He did something stupid at the end. What's the punchline? You know, so, and then the crowds got, got tired of that. And all these comics that thought they could be, you know, in, into politics, which they know nothing about. You know what I mean? 95% of comics know nothing about politics. They just see what someone from Hollywood does and just, you know, okay, then I got to tweet about that too. Let me, oh, the post office is good? Let me go tweet about it. You know, they don't fucking know nothing. So, um, And I started losing a lot of respect for comics over the last few years because I think we the conventional wisdom before was that if you're a fan of comedy, these people are like thought leaders. They put a lot of thought into it. Until you realize a lot of these comics, they just sit around and smoke pot all day. They watch the news or they watch, you know, they scroll through Twitter and then they go on stage after that. And you're like, this isn't a thought leader. This is a fucking loser. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And you're just following what somebody else that you write that, you know, okay, they're just a bunch of ass kisses is what they are. But I realize I've seen it over the last few years is as soon as you bring up politics, the crowd's like, oh, whatever side you are, they don't want to hear it. So I, I've seen a lot of a lot of comics get away from that. I still see it in New York. I've been doing shows in New York. I hear, you know, they bring it up a little, but even the in New York crowd's like, come on, man, we, we got enough of that. Don't beat us over the head with that. Look, when we got to the point where one guy that stood up for the national anthem has to explain why he stood, yeah. how the fuck did that happen? You know what I mean? That was a guy in the San Francisco Giants, Coonrod, his name mm. was. I bought his jersey after he stood up. <laughs> but I'm a San Francisco Giant fan. He had to put out a statement, and there was a guy in the NBA or whatever. It's like, so now you have to explain why you're standing? It's a, And that's what turned a lot of people off, you know? You don't, you don't, you don't see it before a movie. You don't see fucking Tom Cruise taking a knee before Mission Impossible at the movie theater. You don't see any political message. You're like, no, I, I'm going. I got fucking popcorn and fucking soda, and I want to be entertained. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to see some action, just like football and all the sports. And you see what the NBA? The NBA ratings were down like seventy percent since last from last year because they pulled all that bullshit. Nobody's so. watching. Nobody's watching, and, and that's a collection of things: the bubble, and but a lot of it's politics. They're yeah. just they're tired of it. The the season got so then they have to put say their names and BLM and all these other things on their jerseys, and you just watch it. And I, I think I watched, I think I watched a quarter, one quarter, and it was I was at a friend's house, and he had the NBA, he had a, like a Clippers, maybe Mavericks game on, and I just see everything. It was just in your face the entire time. And I'm thinking to myself, it's not just me. It's not just me. There's people turning it off left and right, and they're not going to come back. No. And I told people, I said, I I play beer league softball. I go to the gym. I said, do things that make you happy. Don't do things because you grew up with them and you're supposed to watch the NFL. You don't have to watch the NFL. I'm watching this year. The Browns are interesting. You know, I I don't know how they're going to finish, but they're interesting. But... Do what makes you happy at that time. And and what's interesting is that people probably have this misperception of you is that, oh, Jim's just angry about everything. But you're not. You're really not. It's just these are things that, you know, they're fun to, they're fun to talk about. They're fun discourse and everything. There are things that piss you off, but it's not like you're an angry guy. Like when you wake up, you're like, all right, who am I, what am I going to hate today? No, I, I keep that, you know, I barely engage in social media. I stay off it. I don't, I'm not on it that much. And my whole life isn't that. I don't. I'm not fucking glued to my phone. 
or anything like that. You know, I'm kind of, I'm aware what's going on, but I just don't get in fights with people. I just it's it's all nonsense. It means nothing at yeah. the end of the day. You know, 80% of people are not even on Twitter. They don't even know what they're, you know, you see what's going on on Twitter? No, they have no fucking clue. You know what I mean? There's only, you know, they did a, only 20% of the world is on Twitter and 10% are actually fight back and forth and engage. Mm. The rest of the, my, my, I got fucking, what, 23 family members, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, and I think three are on Twitter out of 23. Yeah, no one's signing up for Twitter. Nobody. Anymore. Nobody knows what the fuck's going on. So you, you, you're fighting with somebody. Nobody's seeing it. You're talking to 100 people. You know what I mean? Like two comics fighting. Like, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't get involved in that stuff, you know? Well, we're well, we're right at the end here. We'll wrap up and uh, we'll get you on your way. You got a couple of shows tonight that uh, by the time you hear this, uh, he'll be long gone from the funny stuff. But uh, Jim, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and doing this with me and uh, being one of the first people on the podcast. I'm trying to do something to get something out there because I feel that at my, you know, my current job that I, I, I kind of have to let loose a little bit. Yeah. And because I'm not at that stage where I can, I am comfortable enough to be on stage, but I also, but I've been working and broadcasting for as long as I can, that this is an outlet that I have that I can talk about these things or I can talk about, you know, old uh, episodes of, you know, Macmillan and wife or something whatever I want whatever's interesting to me and this has uh, really been an interesting conversation I, I'm really happy that you're uh, being able to be a part of it here today yeah no problem man thanks for having me yeah